Jack's RPG podcast, a roundtable discussion that's a mix of friendship, humor, unbridled enthusiasm, and tabletop RPG topics sent in from around the world. Just for another Hello, everybody. I mean, yar, me hearties. I have uh, orchestrated a mutiny and kicked Kimmy off of her own ship. This be my crew now. <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, I know this is a little bit weird, but welcome to Session 30, Episode 20 of the Happy Jacks RPG Podcast. Today, your hosts are Nick and Riley. And I believe we may have a wild special guest appearing later, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, we don't know for that. sure, <laughs> in theory. There, there, was, uh, there was some communication yeah. uh, things that happened. In any case, in today's episode, Mike F. from New York shares his system for categorizing TTRPGs. Zed from the UK asks about balancing crime and punishment so everyone has fun. Jolene shares her strategies for running a mass one-shot and asks our thoughts on the subject. If you'd like to contribute a question or story to the show, email us at happyjacksrpg at gmail.com. Again, that's H-A-P-P-Y-J-A-C-K-S-R-P-G at gmail.com. As if you don't know this because you're either watching or listening. Yeah, you probably but in any case, in. if this is your first episode, whoo! Uh, announcements. Strategicon is coming. Bow, 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 bow. Uh, Labor Day weekend, September two, uh, 2nd through the 4th. Some of us are going to be running games. Kimmy, Jason, and Chris Gray. Uh, it's good to know that Jason's running a game, so I won't anticipate being here for, uh, Castaways on that Saturday, but, uh, we do invite you to come on down to Strategicon if it is at all convenient for you. There will not be a live show at the con. We are still going through the travel kit, pod, travel podcast kit and see what's working and what needs to be replaced and what needs to be updated. But hopefully by the next con, we will have a live, uh, show. The advice show will happen as normal on Friday, the twenty Friday, September second. Boy, I'm already uh, um, I'm, I'm winded, but we got to get through this this uh, first email. Yeah, well, I'll take it over for you because it's a it's it's quite a, a grog to get a a, a a grog slog slog. Yeah, grog is a drink. Yeah. Right. Well, um, it, it just, I, it's in yeah. just. I wish I wore. I would have bought a hat. I have a bunch of stuff. I have. <laughs> I like to cosplay. Uh, yeah, I'll go for this one, and we go. This is a long one, so we'll probably be taking turns and taking some stops along the way. But uh, here we go. Mailback one. This comes to us from Mike F from New York. Uh, Hello, Kimmy and the crew. This is some commentary on the discussion from season thirty, episode sixteen, about what makes a traditional RPG. I think what makes an RPG traditional is a combination of the roles of the people playing the game, the nature of the rules themselves, and the player's expectations regarding the game rules. I am going to restrict this commentary, lies, to tabletop RPG, <laughs> LARPs, and LAOGS's live-action online games and have that have their own set... Oh, I see. I, I, I missed a, a period. I'm going to restrict this commentary to tabletop RPGs because... LARPs and LAOGSs have their own set of traditions and game design movements, and I'm not well-versed in live-action play. It's never been my cup of tea. I thought you were from New York and not the UK. We got a lot of weird emails coming in. All right, sorry, that was a dumb joke. 
<laughs> I am also going to touch on GNS Game Theory, which was an attempt in the mid-aughts to classify RPGs on three axes. Gamist, where the rules provide tools that exist outside of the game world for the players to use, such as metacurrencies, character movement rules, or abstract victory conditions. Narrativist, where the rules provide a framework or mechanics to tell a compelling story. And Simulationist, where the rules seek to simulate a game world and provide structural consistency to the game both in-game from the character's perspectives and in the metagame from the player's perspective. I could talk for hours about GNS theory, its usefulness, its limitations, and why it's fallen out of favor, but that's a subject for another time. Looking at the TTRPG scene today, I see that there are four distinct categories of games. These are broad categories and the boundaries are fuzzy. There are games that straddle categories or don't fit neatly, neatly into any of them. This also isn't the only model you could use to categorize games. I think reasonable people can disagree on the specifics. I like that that's in there. I like the idea that otherwise I'm like, no, this is the only way to categorize them. <laughs> and I'm writing to tell you that if you don't do this, you're wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot play RPGs if you don't have... Yeah. Spit categorization records. <laughs> uh, my four categories are traditional RPGs, the old school renaissance, narrative-focused RPGs, story games, and lyrics games. Lyric games. These categories di diverge from each other at different points over the past 50 years of the hobby, and then the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> so, Nick, do you want to want to keep going or give any commentary on what has been said so far? Uh, I think it's it's interesting. I, I always talk about the GNS theory when I'm talking to people and describing a, a game in terms of gamers versus simulationists, just to kind of have some sort of spectrum that, that uh, can, can be helpful with those sorts of things. Like when people complain how unrealistic falling damage is or yeah. unrealistic that you can run so far in six seconds or whatever, you can go, well, yeah. You know, we're not trying to uh, we're not trying to perfectly mimic life. If you want to do that, go outside and do that. Yeah, I had that exact discussion today online. We were talking about the new Unearth Arcana rules that are being discussed for D and D, and how they're actually possibly going to codify that even on skill checks, natural ones and twenties are successes or failures. Right. And I had somebody who's a friend of mine talking to me on Twitter about it, saying how like he doesn't think they should do it that way because there are some things that you just can't succeed on no matter what. And I'm kind of in the mindset of like, well, I just don't think you should roll dice then. I think if you cannot succeed, this is mathematically impossible for you to succeed. Right. Don't make a player roll dice. And and he was responding like, well, there's some things in reality that you just can't do no matter how hard you try. And I'm like, but I'm not here to live in reality. I'm here to play a game. So right. if the game rules say that I can't do this thing, let's just move on and do something different or find a different route for it. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see both parts of that like on the one hand i play these games because i want to be you know awesome and the superhero and do all of these sorts of yeah. really cool things on the other hand i've never liked that like the giant hulking barbarian rolls a one on their ability to open up the the yeah. portcullis and then you've got the wizard goes well i'll give it a shot and rolls that 20 and yeah hoists it up and you're just like no, in the reality of this world that could not happen yeah i think that's true i think i think the difference is whether you let the person, like if you have a wizard who has no proficiency in strength things, you're like, come on, you know, you're not gonna be able to do this thing. Or, or what is your way of doing it besides physically strength doing right. it? Like, like, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. I'm okay or, with that. Yeah. Like give a little bit of, all right, sell me. Yeah. Like it could be <laughs> like me. a good example of that exact scenario is the, the barbarian shook it and like something popped loose, but it was like two. And then the wizard did it. And it's like, it's like a garage door where like the latch is going. And now when he does it, it rolls right up. But it's like the, the joke. I mean, that's the narrative explanation is that it wasn't that it was the wizard was stronger than the barbarian. It's that the barbarian did something 
didn't pop it open, but got it loosened up. Like, right. I opened that lid for you. Or or the wizard says, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go get this lever and this yeah. rock, and I'm just going to lever that thing open. Yeah, exactly. You go like, okay, physics, I, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into uh, Mike's first uh, theory here, the first uh, designation that Mike has. And again, the opinions of Mike do not reflect the opinions of Happy Jack RPGs or RPG Studios or RPGs. All right. Traditional RPGs. Most RPGs fall under this category. In traditional games, there is a clear distinction between the GM and the players. Players each play their own individual characters who are the protagonists of the game, and the GM runs the world and plays all the other non-player characters. Trad games tend to be simulationist. Their game mechanics are intended to be neutral and are usually universal to both player and GM-run characters. The rules are often analogous to the laws of physics for the game world in a, in a similar situation, fighting, falling, jumping, sneaking, and getting hit. The same rules are going to apply regardless of the specific circumstances. Situational modifiers might apply, but the rules for a gunfight are going to be the same regardless of who's shooting. The rules of the game tend to be player-focused. The rules are there for the players to engage with and often set very clear boundaries and or caveats on when a player can use them and what the limitations might be. In other words, in a traditional game, players are generally pretty sure about how the rules are going to cover the situation they're in and what game mechanics they can use to interact with the challenges the GM presents to them. Most trad games tend to have a good amount of rules, depth, and or complexity. Crunch, as they say, although I hate that term. This gives GMs and players the opportunity to gain system mastery for the game, where they have learned enough about the rules and how they interact so they can usually pick optimal solutions to the problem at hand. As I said, most contemporary RPGs fall into this category, such as D&D 3E, 4E, 5E, GURPS, Hero System Champions, Call of Cthulhu, Amber Diceless Roleplaying, Traveler, Dark Eye, Warhammer, Fantasy Roleplaying, 2D20 System, Year Zero Engine, Cypher System, AGE, Adventure Game Engine, Savage Worlds, Genesis, and a whole lot of others. So, first of all, you're wrong. Uh, at least on these some of these specifics. Yeah. Amber Dice's role-playing game in no way is falls under this uh, simulationist idea since there is, it's literally a magical world where you're walking through dimensions and the way that things are resolved are on a bid system that happened on the session zero. So some person is the strongest of your group and always wins strength contests if that's the only thing that's compared to it. So that is not, does not belong in there. Uh, Savage Worlds does not belong in there either, in my opinion, simply because the uh, explosion mechanic that is inherent in those dice means that someone with a slingshot can, you know, bring down a, a F-16 jet fighter if they just happen to keep hitting on, rolling on damage. Or like a wizard damage. can open a portcullis at a barbarian cooking <laughs> if they just kept rolling dice. Basically. Um, so, so I understand, I understand what you're saying. And to some extent, I agree with, there is a certain interpretation of traditional RPGs that that could certainly be an argument for, that they tend to be simulationist, that they tend to be trying to represent real laws of physics and how things work in the world that we understand and inhabit most of the time. Uh, and because of that, they do have a lot of rules, depth and complexity, um, but I think that being a traditional RPG is not just those things, because I think there are games that I would classify as traditional RPGs that don't have those, and ones that do that I don't think are traditional um, for, for various reasons. I think that it's, like almost everything, it's kind of on a spectrum. Yeah. 
Which, I mean, Mike even admits earlier that saying the boundaries are fuzzy, so he's kind of like these broad strokes. But I agree with you about that, yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. Sure. There's a lot I'll, I'll take the next oh, paragraph. We'll, we'll, you want to just switch off paragraphs sure. we can do? I think you know more than I do about like game theory and stuff, so that's why I'm kind of letting you have like more of the color commentary on it. That's okay. why, yeah. No, I, I don't know that I know more. I think that I just have louder opinions because... <laughs> Because I'm not in the room with this guy, <laughs> so I can tell him he's wrong all day. And really, I, I am, which is really bizarre. <laughs> all right, the next category is Old School Renaissance, OSR, RPGs. The OSR started in the very early aughts as a reaction to D&D 3E. Some players and GMs didn't like how explicitly codified the rules for most game had become, particularly for D&D 3E. Their argument was that complex rules put too much predictability into the game, and some thought that the complexity too much creati- uh and some though some thought that the complexity uh, was I th- I too think, much it, I think it took too much some games some thought the complexity took too much creativity and responsibility away from ah, the ah that's that makes sense yeah. i will accept that uh too much creativity and or responsibility away from the gm like traditional games osr games tend to be simulationist However, their rule sets tend to be very much lighter, relying on the GM to use rulings, not rules. The first wave of OSR games used Watsies and then and then new open game license to recreate long out-of-print earlier editions of D&D. Such games were dubbed retro clones. Examples are Swords and Wizardry, a clone of the 1974 original D&D, Labyrinth Lord, a clone of the 1981 Moldvay edition of the D&D Basic Expert Rules, by the way, that was the first RPG that I ever played and nice. owned uh, for myself. And the art is amazing, if uh, dated. <laughs> uh, and Osric, a clone of AD&D 1E. What rules there are in OSR games are dangerous to engage with. Combats are unpredictable and deadly. Social encounters can turn ugly fast. Jumping over a chasm can be instant death. Smart OSR players will always stack the deck in their favor, using out-of-the-box creativity and what's presented in the environment to take any possible advantage they can. Fights are to be avoided when possible. Clever PCs lure monsters into traps and set two groups of enemies to fight each other, or just run away. OSR-style play rewards creativity beyond what's on your character sheet or written in the rulebook. While retro clone games are still around, new SR games have come onto the market in recent years that keep the ethos of rulings, not rules, and the emphasis upon of player creativity without basing themselves on D&D or earlier RPGs. Examples of Neo-OSR games include Morkborg, Into the Odd, Best Left, and Stars Without Number. Now, I'm I'm not a big OSR person myself, so I'm going to let you have your thoughts on this, because I don't know how if you're into this uh, big thing or not. But uh, Honestly, no. I, I'm, I'm not into OSR so much, partly because I played through them when they were happening the first time, so I don't feel the need to kind of go back to those items. Yeah, I I do take some issue with some of the items raised here in that on the one hand, having GM creativity and player creativity and thinking outside the box, those are all great things that I don't think should be restricted at any game or level of play. Yeah. And I try to reward that when I run a game and I try and do creative things with spells and attacks and with the environment when I am a player as well. I think that the real problem with that style that is being described in this sort of OSR style is so much is left up to the GM. And so if you have a good GM, great. Yeah. If you have a bad one, it is 
the fucking worst. Yeah. I will just like say. a bad GM is bad in any game, but especially a game that has this much power given to that bad GM. Right. Right. It's yeah. the the thing about having more rules and and more current games. Uh, yes, it does take a lot more time to 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 get to know them. It does make it feel like you're losing some parts of the creativity of items. But it also sets up a framework that kind of equalizes the power between the GM and the player a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of like being part of a union uh, where you have you have things to back you up and to make sure that you're not just railroaded. And uh, especially the, the thing with those styles of games, in my opinion, is that they tend to reward a combative style GM play where the GM is trying to win over the players. Yeah which is foolish in all ways, because if you're the game master, you have all the power. You could just make it so they die. There's no fun in that for you. Eventually, it, you know, it's, I guess, yeah, I guess bullying like that is fun for a little while, but I hope that we all grow out of that. Um, but it's certainly not fun for the players. If the objective is I'm just going to crush your spirits yeah. and that sort of thing. That being said, a lot of people like the idea of having to think outside the box, knowing that there are deadly traps, the ten, literal 10-foot pole pushing on everything in front of them and throwing dust in the air to see if there's laser beams or trip wires or anything like that. That's great. It also tends to take a super long time to do something simple like open a door yeah. because you're, all right, I oil the hinges. I'm making sure that they're not you know, <laughs> connected to a trip wire. I'm... You know, oh, I'm I'm feeling all the door to make sure there's no heat coming off of any part of it. I'm yeah. Uh, you know, I use this grabber claw from ten feet away. To you're describing why I don't play these games. Like, yeah, <laughs> I I think that my I didn't get into D and D until later editions because when I was younger, the the, the games that got me into role playing were I'm, we'll probably talk about it a little bit moving into this next sec this next section. But my first game was where was was Vampire and Werewolf. Like I. White Wolf was so there, look. Those are those are pretty crunchy games too, but they have a lot more story narrative, which is what got me excited about them. But I I can't tell you how I, I'm just too impatient as a, as an ADHD player to sit and like have someone go through every little thing to get through what's like like ten seconds of of story. Even even when you get into like moments in in like five E D and D, which I I quite enjoy, but when there's like a thing where like we're like we're doing multiple rounds of combat and like if you for some reason you get paralyzed or you are, are incapacitated or unable to roll and like if you have a long combat happening it can get real dreary after a while like waiting for stuff to happen so yeah yeah um the the i had a thought the thought is gone probably wasn't important then um it may come back up oh it, it was just a, on a personal note I tend to be a fairly cautious RPG player because I want my character to live. Yeah, of course. So one of the things I don't like about this is that I have to be like going on tiptoes and, and these arbitrary traps that happen that you really had no way of, of knowing. Some games I have tried to adjust that and just be the guy who presses buttons and opens doors and just goes, screw it. I'll be the first one through because we got to. We came here to adventure, right? We're not just gonna yeah. stand around here and worry about this pit trap for the next two yeah. hours. I, I, I intentionally my last big campaign that I was in, I intentionally made my character a little impatient, so that like and like and like dealt with damage. Like I almost died multiple times because I was like I was the captain of our crew, and I was like, "No, we're going, we're doing this," and so I would just go right into it. One thing I want to say, I think it's a good lead-in to this next section, 
is that I push back a lot on this idea that the the make or break between story friendly and rules friendly is is crunch or no crunch. I don't agree that less crunch is inherently more story friendly. And I think that that's like a pretty commonly held belief in, in RPGs, especially nowadays. And I get why people say that, but kind of what you said earlier about like not being on rails, but having like framework as a writer, I often find that I do better writing when I'm forced to work within a constraint of something. Yeah. And so I do think that like there, there are ways to be creative and, and interesting and build a fun story within the like restrictions of crunch that in my mind can be as creative if, as, or more creatively filling than working with a more open, like rules light system. So I, I do think that like, I don't think like it's wrong to say like yes these games are rules driven these games are, are story driven but I do push back when people are like oh this is automatically better storytelling because of the lack lack of rules because sometimes I think having rules helps you like I when I'm making a, a background for my character it's way easier for me to think of a much more like involved and deep background by picking one that's already in the book and going okay I'm starting from this thing where do I go from there it's like having a prompt mm-hmm. versus like I. I will always write more with a prompt than if you give me a blank page and tell me, okay, write something. Like, right. oh no. <laughs> like, well, it, yeah. you know, it helps like for improv, you call for a suggestion from the audience yeah. to give you a place to start. Otherwise, uh... <laughs> yeah, let me yes and something. So yeah. So that gets a good one to go into this next uh, section with. So narrative focused RPGs. Yes, this is all still the same email. Narrative focused RPGs, aka story games. There these have been around for a while but really got their due in the Forge era in the early aughts. Unlike both Trad and OSR games, narrative focused games tend not to be concerned with game mechanics that simulate the world itself. The rules are there to help the players tell an interesting and compelling story about the player characters. Most narrative-focused games set hard bounds around the kind of story they're designed to tell and break down or don't work at all uh, when you leave those bounds. These games are a conversation between the GM and the players. Players are usually encouraged to think and make decisions in the metagame, often called the fiction, so as, not to, so as to make interesting things happen in the game. The game mechanics often encourage thinking from the player's perspective rather than that of their character. Most narrative-focused RPGs still have a GM role, but many don't. Some games use the rules themselves to fill the role of a GM, while others explicitly share the responsibilities of a GM among the players in some manner. Many narrative-focused games... Okay. Most narrative-focused games use a sort of randomizer... That was That's in the text. That's not me. Uh use a sort of randomizer like dice or cards, but they aren't so much a resolution mechanic as a means of determining who has narrative control to to say what happens next. Early examples of narrative-focused games include Sorcerer, My Life with Master, and Dogs in the Vineyard. Contemporary games include For the Queen, Fiasco, Aegon, Fate, and the Power by the Apocalypse family of games, and their descendants, Forge in the Dark, Belonging Outside, Belonging, and Fire... Firebrand's framework. And while many narrative-focused games are rules-light, that's not necessarily true. Example, Burning Wheel or Flying Circus. So, I definitely agree with the point that a lot of times these games are designed to tell a specific kind of story, and if you're not telling that story, then it kind of does fall apart a little bit. But I also think Power by Apocalypse is a good example of how that's not necessarily true, because, yes, if you're playing a specific game using that system it's going to be hard to go outside of that game's narrative. But the fact that those exact same rules can be used for a variety of stories does kind of imply like, okay, yes, like this particular campaign might be hard to move outside of that box, but the rules, the rules as they're created are actually pretty malleable. Right. Um, 
I also I I, I tend to disagree with this uh, a little bit in that. Um, where was the part that I was looking at? I don't believe that narrative-focused games like that encourage you to make decisions on a meta level as opposed to make decisions for your character. I think that, sure, that happens, but that happens in all games. Uh, at at every point, someone's going to be, on some level, making decisions that they are making rather than what their character are making. But I think narrative one narrative games actually more often fall under the the uh, auspice of my character and not what I want to do. And sometimes it leads to interesting things to yeah. in the game that I'm in right now, cast offs. Uh, there was a little bit of contention between uh, Pooja's character, Lucky, who'd been trying to introduce my character, uh, Sal to uh, something that Sal really liked to eat. For those of you who aren't watching, Sal is an eight foot animated uh, figurehead from a ship. And so doesn't really have a need to eat and didn't really see the point. Um, and so after trying that for a while, uh, couldn't come up with anything. And then an NPC gave Sal some wood stain uh, or wood polish. And that was kind of uh, slightly psychoactive for Sal. And they uh, were really into it and thought it was really good. And yeah. Lucky felt very betrayed because of that. And when during the conversation, Sal wanted, I wanted Sal to apologize and try and smooth it over and everything. But what came out of my mouth was a I'm sorry you feel that way sort of statement. Yeah. And I stopped and was like, oh, God, I hate this. But this is what Sal thinks and this is what Sal's going to do. Yeah. And Sal just kept dugging themselves deeper in this, you know, celebrity apology, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that line honestly twinged my ear as well as I was reading it. But where I will give Mike credit for what I think I think Mike's trying to say there is that like there are times and like I remember I played a game of using Power by Apocalypse as an example I played a game of Heart of uh, what's it called? Um, Monster Hearts? Yeah, Monster Hearts at a con and at the beginning of the game you know we were like you're in a classroom someone's sitting in front of you who is that person? And then you like describe who that person is and then like as, as players we ended up describing the entire classroom like well why is why is this person mad at at you know, Steven's character. And then I'm like, well, because this, they, they cheated on each other or whatever. So like, that's, I think where maybe it's saying you're getting more into like the player mindset, as opposed to your character's point of view of the thing. Mm -hmm. I think you can do it both ways. I think you could play it as what is your player? What does your character think about that? Like, like I think that's how Decima works a lot with like, when you get to character relationships, but even Decima, like when you're building the world, I think like that is more, like your 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 outside the game brain looking into the world and creating the world together, so I can give it that, and I think that might be true about some games in this list. Like for the queen, especially, I feel like you're building a story based on the deck of cards, absolutely. As opposed to, I think that Power by Apocalypse, I think like you're giving players world building powers, but then you also still push them back into character. So I guess that might fall into like that kind of like gray area that was mentioned earlier between like. It depends on what part of the game you're currently playing. Yeah, absolutely. But like even people who are listening currently to uh, to Hexbreakers will notice that there are times where Emily asks us what's a fact about this part of the world. Like, what do people think? A lot of times she'll do it in the in the guise of like, what does your character think of that, or what what does your character heard? But not always. So that's like a, like what that's that's kind of I think like I think these kind of games maybe have a little more space for that kind of play. Like, I run 
a Doctor Who RPG podcast, and built into the mechanic of the game is everybody has story points. And when you spend story points, you get like very limited GM powers Mm -hmm. and you're able to like influence the story that way. Now granted, usually you spend the story points in a way that's going to directly benefit or affect your character, but you are still taking it outside of things your character is choosing to do and kind of deciding as a player, this is what's happening in the world that allows my character to do this thing. Right. Uh, I I do agree with the, with the part that about, um, uh, do, 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 I do agree with the part that that these games are often designed to play a certain uh, a certain style of game, yeah. and that they don't necessarily translate over. Um, ten Candles isn't on this list, but that's also very much like you couldn't use Ten Candles to play a happy story. It's yeah. just It'd not available. It wouldn't be very fun if you did. Right. Um, the Forged in the Dark stuff, the uh, like Blades in the Dark. Again, you have to be telling a story about being inside this city that is the last city. And being surrounded by electrical ghosts and whatnot and, yeah. and you know, running a crew, you can't use that to tell the story of, like, it'd be really rough to use that to do a coming-of-age story, yeah. for, for instance. Or, you know... You could do it, but you'd have to do a coming-of-age story in that setting. Yeah. yeah. And and you'd, you'd have to make some certain concessions, I think, because it's, it's, it's a brutal-style game, yeah. and you'd kind of have to, you know, t- tinker with it a little bit. So, yes, I, again, narrative-focused RPGs do tend to have a certain narrative that they want you to tell. They are a little bit guided. Yeah, you're pretty stuck. in Like, even if you are playing... Like, I mentioned how Power by Apocalypse's overall rules can be used to play different kinds of narratives. But once you've picked a PBTA game, your playbooks are pretty much set for the kind of game you're telling. And it's like, we, I actually... I did a a bonus episode of my friend has a, a podcast about romance like stories mm-hmm. and we played uh wind uh warmer in the winter which is like a holiday romance style rpg like designed to be like a hallmark movie basically that would be a really hard system to be playing if suddenly zombies came in because not unlike monster hearts where monster hearts most of your moves are about turning each other on and having like social interactions not a whole lot of fighting going on with it a little bit but not a lot Warmer Winter has even less, and Warmer Winter's rules are all about like having stri- like heartstrings on somebody and how like how you can ma- mm-hmm. manipulate them. It'll be really tough if suddenly you're playing like an action-heavy game. So, although I do think kind of a, a, a game about relationships and having influence on people in a world that happened to be in like a zombie apocalypse would be really oh, yeah. interesting. Like you're Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but like you're playing it with, you're still playing the intrigue and the relationships exactly. and the zombies just happen to be there. I've always wanted to write a movie about that, by the way, but I'm not good enough at writing <laughs> just people talking. Like I need, yeah. I love the idea of like, this just is a world full of zombies, but now we're trying, it's almost like Shaun of the Dead with just all the like friendship relationship stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that'd be pretty neat. All right. So you want to hop into lyric games? I do. I'm actually interested because I'm not sure what this topic is going to mean. Uh, Lyric Games. This is the newest movement on the scene, and I don't have a lot of first-hand experience with them. Uh, Like narrative-focused games, Lyric Games tell a very specific kind of story, or possibly just a single story. Unlike a narrative-focused game, Lyric Games are primarily about evoking emotions in the players. Oh, so this might be where Ten Candles comes in. I don't think our guest is going to make it based on the message we just got, just so you know. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Um... Well, folks, this is not a very successful mutiny. I only have one other mutineer. So hey, we're still here. That's we true. Lock this place down. That's true. That's but true. By locking down, I mean it's open and anyone can walk in. We, <laughs> we left it open for somebody to come in if they want to. 
Uh, let me go. Or possibly just single story. Unlike the narrative-focused games, lyric games are primarily, primarily about evoking emotion in the players and to make them think about how the fictional situation presented in the game relates to the real world and to look at it from a new perspective. One thing I find fascinating about lyric games is that while they are playable as a game, the author often, the author often never really intended the game to be played. Reading the game and thinking about how the game would play out is often enough to evoke the intended emotions and think about the world differently. As I said in my intro, some games straddle the line or don't fit the model. I'll just take part of this here. Yeah. Um, actually, no, we should probably pause and talk about lyric games for a minute. Yeah. Actually, I am going to read this next paragraph. Read this paragraph and then we'll stop. I think it's a good wrapping up of the categories and it kind of gets in the thoughts. Yeah. Uh, As I said in my intro, some games straddle the line or don't fit the model. 13th Age is at its core a traditional RPG based on D&D 4E, with some elements of narrative-focused games added in. Alice is Missing combines aspects of a narrative-focused game, a lyric game, and a live-action online game. Bluebeard's Bride is a narrative-focused game that specifically tries to evoke emotions like a lyric game. So, I would like as, to know an actual example of what Mike means by a lyric game, since yeah. all these examples here are games that are kind of lyric-y, but not... Like, when it says, like, games that are never intended to be played, I'm like, what, what games are you talking about, then? Yeah, I, the only thing I can think of that's like that are, are kind of like the journal-type games, where you... Like, I've seen a lot of, like, journal-style games where it proses certain questions for you and asks you to to take different steps or based off of whatever you answered on this question. Okay. How does that how like does a that Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, whatever it's called, or whatever yeah. that game's called. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah. That. Th- things like that. I'm assuming that that's, that that's um, what Mike's going for here. Um, what and would I, you call a game like um, um, The Quiet Year? I was thinking of Quiet Year uh, when we were talking about the narrative style games is what I would think because okay. it, it it has the cards which are a randomizer um, which is indicated. It definitely is trying to set. A, a, I feel like it's trying to set a feeling if you play it in the most traditional sense where True. where the end is coming and this is the year before the end happens and yeah you know it's a good example too of a game where the players aren't necessarily playing as player characters but are playing as like kind of like smaller GMs. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. a GMless game. So. Yeah, um, like that. Now, obviously, it can be used for different things. Um, not to, not to like, advertise for someone who doesn't need our <laughs> our audience. But the Adventure Zone used it to to build up the world that they were then going to play their D D yeah. campaign in, uh, most recently. And that was, of course, a slightly different variant on that because even though the catastrophe did happen, they survived to go on to the rest of their campaign. Yeah. Um, but it definitely feels like it's a game that's designed to uh, evoke loss, um, which kind of places, I guess, in the narrative, in the lyric category, um, but without 100% on there, I-, I would say. Like, you can still have victories. Yeah. Um, there was a game I play tested many years ago that was called, I think, The End of Magic. And it was it was sort of like for the queen, but you were going from different locations. You were escorting the, like the last magician somewhere as magic is dying and going out of the world. And it definitely had like it, oh, it's it, called Children of Magic, and it had Clive Owen in it. <laughs> it's actually a really cool scene where it's all one shot. So that's kind of cool. Oh yeah. 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 
Except maybe they cheated and they actually digitally added two shots together. And you can oh, what yeah. Happened. Sort of like, uh, what was it, 1917? Oh, 1914. Yeah, 1917. Yeah. 1917. Uh, where it looks like it's one shot, but it's really... I think it's the same director. I think those are both Alfonso Cuaron, aren't they? Sure. If you're wrong. No, I think 17... <laughs> it doesn't matter. There's wrong show uh, for this topic. Yeah, I, I'm not a movie nerd that I think he's not Alfonso and someone's really mad that I said that, <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um... But but in any case, I mean, I, I, I would have liked to have seen what Mike calls a lyric game as well, specifically. I think we have an idea on, on what that's like. Um, Ten Candles, if you don't know, or Dread might fit into this a little bit, where what yeah. it's what it's building is anxiety and yeah, you know, Dread's tension. Yeah, a good example. Yeah, actually, I used to throw that up. Um, re regardless of what world you're actually playing in, the game, the mechanics itself make you... For anyone who's not familiar, Dread is played with a Jenga tower. Yeah. Uh, and every time a momentous thing happens, you have to make a move, take a block, and put it on top. And obviously, if you've ever played Jenga before, it gets more and more teetery, and eventually it falls. And when it falls and breaks, that means someone's going to die or some big thing is going to change or, or happen in the world. So Yeah. And I, I can see why, like, Ten Candles will fall into that as well, because Ten Candles, like, you're slowly working through candles, you have less candles left each time, so it's there's less light, and the whole idea is it just it's darker and darker and more threatening, so. We're, we're getting some really good comments uh, in chat here about Ten Yankee Candles, Tragic Horror with a hint of cardamom nut muffin, <laughs> and uh, ten, car ten Candles Hallmark movie hack, uh, where you start with zero candles, and then you light them as, as, as things happen, as good things happen. Uh, uh, and yes, it probably was Fall of Magic, the the one with the huge map. Yes, that's exactly it. I just couldn't remember what it was. Uh, what it was called. I keep threatening to run a ten candle session on my Doctor Who RPG and call it Ten Torches, and all the players are playing Torchwood agents that are <laughs> in some like weird place. Oh, that's oh, that's fun. I want to do it as a Patreon exclusive, but I, the problem with it is I want to do it in person because I think Ten Candles is such a more fun game in person. Oh yeah, and our group still isn't comfortable doing all in person games, so it's like all I right. understand. Yeah. Well, keep it in the back pocket. Yeah. You know. All right. Are we ready to move on to the yeah. wrap up of this? Uh... I, I think so. Let's okay. let's do this. I'll take this over here. These days, I mostly this is still Mike's email. These days, I mostly spend my time in story game and OSR circles. My particular interest right now is the intersection and overlap between these movements and the games that have come out of that intersection. My current favorite RPG is Trophy Gold, which is specifically designed to be a hybrid between an OSR RPG and a story game. It's a truly amazing game that really does combine the best elements of both movements. I wish you had told us what about it makes it like I, I don't want to criticize the email. That's mean. I didn't mean to say it that way, but like I, I'm curious what like I'm not, not knowing this game. I would like to know what about this game for you appeals to those two specific things because I think for me, having read that paragraph, I, I feel I think I think of trad games as being a combination of OSR and story games. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I was like. I mean, but that's I'm having a hard time visualizing what that actually means as a result of that. Um, do you have any thoughts about this particular section before we move on, or do you want to? Um, I I was actually just going to look up Trophy Gold because I'm now curious about this game that I've never heard of before. Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, that's like my gut reaction to hearing combination of OSR and story is like, isn't that just a trad game? I could be way wrong about it. I totally am willing to accept the like, no, this is what makes it different, and this is what's interesting about it. So. Oh, okay. I have I have heard of this. I'd forgotten about it. Trophy is a game where you are a doomed treasure hunter, and uh, it's a world of uh, rumor, history, and myth. Uh, dark forest, dank, uh, dank caves. 
and dank memes. <laughs> yes, you're going to the dank chaos for yeah. dank memes. Yeah, that that's the treasure. Yeah, <laughs> the real treasure is the jokes are made along the way, <laughs> and that twenty thousand other people made too. <laughs> Um, but I thought uh, Trophy Gold was the guy who was killed by Doomsday on the past in Metropolis before Superman died. Uh, I thought Trophy Gold was, this might be the same character, the the one who uh, came from the future and was a real jackass yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, okay, same character. Yeah, that's a okay. joke. Yeah, I was. I, I'm not yeah. super into. I think, into Booster, DC, I think Booster yeah. Gold is killed by Doomsday before Superman is killed by, by Doomsday. So. Okay, good. <laughs> I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm not. I'm actually not a giant DC person either. But it's like one fact that I think I know. In in my canon, that's true. Because yeah. frankly, he deserves it. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Sorry to any Booster Gold lovers out there. Please, please, please keep, keep, Gold keep listening and watching. Yeah. Fr- friend of the podcast, Booster Gold. Yeah. <laughs> Booster Gold, who's going to hear this in the future. In the oh, archives, that's right. Yeah. And then come back in time because of yes, this. Yes, okay. Yeah. I'll I, tell you rem- who's Booster Remember, I told you that we were going to have a super, <laughs> we might have a super special <laughs> guest coming right in the middle. It's going to be Booster Gold. Superhero, Booster Gold. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I can say, I guess I... You, Trophy Gold, th- thank you for reading that example because now I kind of visualize a little bit more what's meant about the combination of OSR and story versus what to me like sounded like trap. So that's good. One question I might hear some people ask is what about indie RPGs? I don't like that term because it's more about the size of the game publisher than anything about the game itself. In terms of sales, Wizards of the Coast is larger than all other RPG publishers put together. So by that measure, any game that isn't D&D is an indie RPG. That is another topic for another discussion. And I, I yeah, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. I Obviously, like D&D is the most known game. We talked about this a little bit before the show. Also, D and D is owned by Hasbro, so it's definitely not. You definitely can't call them indie. Right. But I also don't think that the only qualification of D, of what's indie is you're not as big as D and D, because I think that there are smaller game studios that are fully functioning game studios. I I think because because we actually did have this discussion before the show uh, for a good fifteen twenty minutes, Probably. like a, a good so, long time sorry about that about yeah. it, um, and. I think that we kind of came to the consensus that the difference between that, that an indie game slash indie game studio has to fall into sort of a matrix. And part of that matrix is uh, where are they, where are they getting their money? Like, are they owned by another company that is, you know, has crazy money and resources that they can give? Do they, is it a small studio where it's just one or two people who are making this, out of love and you know, maybe it'll turn into something great or is it someone who has the wherewithal either from uh Kickstarter or some other personal reserves of wealth that they can hire people and have like a full-time staff who, who works on a thing. Yeah. Um, and to some extent it also kind of has to do with, in my opinion, it has to do with the type of game that it is. Um, but that's not entirely, uh, that's not entirely in and of itself the only thing that's a qualifier. Um, I used the example before of Evil Hat, who I no longer consider indie, even though the rules that they use, the the fate system, is not traditional in the sense that uh, you know, in, in in the sense that like a Dungeons and Dragons is. Yeah, and it's like I think a lot of studios too that are making licensed games for like branded content. I think it's hard to say that that company is indie, even if like you said, they're maybe like not owned by a bigger company, 
at the same time, if you're making a game that is literally the like IP of a corporation, it's kind of hard to be like, ah, you're an indie game maker. So maybe it can be wrong, um, but well, like w- one of the examples that we talked about earlier was Hunter, and Hunter has the IP for um, Altered Carbon. Yeah, but I still wouldn't consider Hunter to be. Uh, I would still consider Hunter to be an, an indie RPG. Okay, that's fair. Uh, you know what? I will eat crow on that one. You're right about. I think I. I think you. I think I may. Even as I was saying, I'm like, yeah, that might be might be true because maybe you scramble enough money together to make a purchase of, an, of or, a license. I mean, it just might end up being like who you know. If you have a friend of a friend who owns this cool IP, yeah. I wasn't thinking all the carbon as much as I was thinking of stuff like, like the Marvel superheroes RPGs. Oh, sure, and right. Like, like, like I look Doctor Who. We're playing Cubicle Seven. They have the, the BBC license to make Doctor Who games. I don't know. I don't know if I would consider Fantasy Flight to be indie when they're making Star Wars. Not anymore, but you know, like uh, Fantasy Flight is definitely, in my opinion, not indie. Yeah. So I mean, given given the breadth and the scope of the games that they make, uh, TTRPGs, uh, board, board games, games yeah. like there's there's they've got way too much going on. Yeah. That's, that was what a lot of what we talked about earlier, too, was, like, if if one of your games doesn't do well, if your entire company won't go under, you're probably not an indie. Like, whereas, like, right. yeah. Um, whereas, like, if you're somebody who is, is, like, running a game studio, like, in, a in, in like, part of your yard, and you're running games while you're doing other things, like, that might be an indie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Should we move? That was, that, so that, so Mike says, thank you for taking the time to read and listen to these musings. See you on the Discord, Mike F. New York. Thank you, Mike F. We we kind of gave you a little bit of a hard time here, but we do yeah. appreciate we do appreciate all of your thoughts. We do, and I, more, mostly it's me because I, I'm I'm mush mouthy, and I and I'm also I have ADHD, so if I make clips, it's mostly so that my brain can keep going through stuff. But obviously, you're very enthusiastic, and you have a lot of very interesting and fun perspectives. So thank you for sharing them with us. All right, I'm going to start email two. Cool. Dear Happy Jack's crew, no, it be my crew now. (laughs) I'm facing a bit of a dilemma. To preface things, the party is on a quest to help save the commander of an army uh, to make a coalition of drow and orcs not evil in this setting. Not an honor. This commander, unknown to them, is also secretly a dragon. Now, on the way to the dungeon, they meet a cult of Durgar who seek vengeance on all land dwellers. They promise the group the gift of a magical weapon if they defeat the one down below who keeps killing their members. Now, once down there, they find out that this person is, in fact, the drow commander that they were sent to save. He is brooding over an artifact of their god, these artifacts being an overarching part of the plot which led to the coalition forming in the first place. Now he identifies the group has a bag of holding and insists that they use it to help him bring his artifact back with him. Instead of helping him, they decide to murder him instead, justifying it by saying by saying he as pushy and aggressive asking for their bag. Uh, I'm sure justifying it by saying he was pushy and aggressive asking for their bag of holding, then claiming their prize from the Durgar cult who is now rampaging on the surface, killing in the name of their evil god. Now on their return, the group confessed to their crime with some, and with some good roles avoided being killed on the spot. Instead, they will be taken to trial. First of all, don't never confess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, at this point, this is on your players because yeah. their players have been like, we were bringing him up. We totally had saved him. And then out of nowhere, this sugar got him. Oh, yeah. no. You yeah. know, exactly. Blame yeah. it on blame it on the people who are rampaging and, and get the coalition to follow you. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, instead, they're Think taking about, the like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when Sean Connery shoots out the tail end. Yeah. The Sorry, son. They got they us. They got us. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think about that scene like it's once so a month good. easily. So good. <laughs> Thank now, this is the dilemma I'm facing. I'm not sure how to go about the whole thing. In your experience, is the way to punish the group appropriately for their crime without being too harsh and ruining their fun. Your most loyal listener, Zed, from Norfolk, UK. Uh, so I think that... Here's what I think, first of all. I think that a trial can be a really interesting a really interesting scene in, a, in an RPG, especially one like Dungeons & Dragons that mainly focuses on combat. Yeah. To have to take that combat into you know, the court of words and convince people and make arguments, great. Um, I think the, the first thing I would think is that one thing that you could do if no one feels comfortable doing that is assign them some sort of a, a DA. Yeah. Give, give them a defender who is going to try and help make their case in front of someone. And, you know, if you're just doing it strictly by roles, has good charisma and persuasion and whatever. So you can kind of give them a chance if they're all, you know, fighters and muggers and thieves. Yeah. Uh, the speaking of other other uh, shows and podcasts, I would say that uh, Dungeons and Daddies did a really really fun trial arc where obviously that plays in the fact that it's a podcast. They were able to kind of like have a guest come on to be the like opposing lawyer and go through it and play <laughs> things, and then they also like recorded parts of the trial and actually like sent them to people to rule on whether or not they were guilty or not, which is very fun. Oh, cool! But I think yeah, I think making a series of skill checks for the trial where based on how strong their argument is. You can be like, okay, you're rolling with advantage or disadvantage for this convince roll, and like you can have a series of skill check, a skill checks that, if you have achieved this level, you might be able to like talk down your sentence, or you might make it worse for yourself, and that right. can be a really fun. So that can be a whole session, possibly two sessions of fun right there. And then going off of that, I also think that being put in prison is very fun in an RPG setting. Like I've played enough JRPGs where suddenly you get captured, and you're usually it's for something that you're not responsible for. Right. But you get you get stuck in an imperial prison or something like that, and you have to like then you have to seek out and find your stuff that's in like a, a, a chest somewhere. You have to break it to like sneak past guards. Like that can be a fun thing. You can also think of like what their sentence might be. Like you can put them on a prison train if there's, if there's trains in this world. You can do all sorts of fun well, escape that, from prison you know, things. It can be a caravan. It can be yeah. You know they're all chained together, sort of thing, a chain gang. Yeah. Type, oh my god. Thing. How fun would it be to make someone play a whole session where they don't have their weapons and they're all chained to each other? So like they all have to think about like no, no one can just run off because they'll all come with them. Right. Oh my god, that would be so <laughs> fun. Now I'm going to steal that from one of my games. And then also, what are if your characters are heroes and are hired for a thing? Uh, you can also have some fun punishments that are more like community service type things. And suddenly your characters are, we played a game in my, it was a one-off. It was for uh, Jasper's game day this year mm -hmm. where the premise was like kind of a ripoff. It was, a, it was an inspired, not a ripoff. It was inspired by Shit's Creek. And the premise was that our characters had destroyed this like town square in our last adventure. And now we had been sent by the adventurers guild to live in a small town and do a bunch of menial jobs that like, our characters were way too OP for. And it was like hilarious. It was so much fun <laughs> to be like tasked with like helping this girl find her cat or like painting the roof of this building and like that kind of stuff. So I think you can have a lot of fun with that too. So I, I think that I think lean into crime and punishment, especially if they were already come out of being killed. I think it's really easy to just jump into, okay, you have to do a combat to break out, but instead right. of making it, yeah, a trial can be a whole session. A whole other session can be how do the characters deal with the fallout of their crime. It might even be fun to cut, like, it's been, like, 
I don't remember Fable 2, where you end up like working in the spire and like 10 years of game time have passed and you're still in the spire and then you come out of it again when right. everyone's older. It can be like a really funny thing if in your game you have 10 years where you're in this prison and then you come out and you're all ex-cons now. <laughs> well, and, and also like from a, just a strict RP standpoint, how do the people's uh, family and friends feel? Do do they have they had to have people who want to try and break them out? Maybe that's a maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Maybe what they do is they sentence you to have to do, you know, exile or you have to do a quest. Since you've killed the leader, you must now go find the next reincarnation of the leader who was just born somewhere. Yeah. You've got to figure it out. Or maybe now you have to go find the artifact that's going to keep the coalition together to fight off this army of Drugar. Or maybe you get assigned to have to go assassinate their general yeah. and their leader since you got our leader killed. Like there's a lot of different things that you can do um, that that uh, I, I that we think are going to be a lot of fun for that. Now, yeah. I think what you're concerned about is um, it was brought up a little bit in chat is uh, Stork is famous for not wanting stuff to be taken away from his character. And I know that a lot of people feel like that. Um, but I think that in this case, the A, the story supports it. B, you can be pretty up clear, pretty upfront that they're going to get their stuff back yeah. or have the opportunity to get their stuff back or get different stuff in these sorts of things. Um, so I don't feel like that's arbitrarily taking someone's stuff away. This is this is the find out portion of the game because they already had the fuck around yeah, part yeah. on here. And if they have to play a session or two where they don't have their stuff. That also just increases the creativity quotient here. It it becomes the, well, of course you can pick the lock because you've got lock picks and, you know, you've got an 18 dexterity. But now it's, oh, look, uh, there's there's a stick and you were able to steal a fork, you know, so yeah. go go to work. Yeah, I, I, I definitely understand not wanting your stuff taken away from you, but I think making it clear that you're going to get it back or you, you have the possibility to get it back. And like, yeah, I got to tell you, like, there's been plenty of games like like a, a lot of JRPGs where you wake up and suddenly you don't have all your cool stuff. And there's a chest you find, like a few rooms down that has it all in there, but you have to get to that room first and right. make it happen and make it work and do a couple of fist fights ahead of time to get there. If you're in a game where people have magic, as long as they have magic spells that don't require material components, they can still cast some spells. And I did, I played a game where I had been captured and I was rescued by the party. That w and I didn't have any of my stuff, and so I could only do cantrips for a while because that's the only spells that I could nice. cast that didn't have that didn't require me to at least have my focus, which I didn't have. I didn't have my wand or whatever it was. So um, it was a staff. I didn't have my staff. So until I had my staff, I couldn't cast any spells that needed uh, material components. So I, I played in a game where I again I had a spellcaster, and there were things like just what components you can find slash make. And like the big thing about being able to find a spider web and now I can cast web. Yeah. You know, I only get one shot at it, but that was more than I had 20 minutes ago. Yeah. It's Gandalf on the roof of Isengard finding that butterfly or the, the bug that goes by so we can call the eagle. To come yeah. Like, yeah. That exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Like, so, and I think that those can lead to really great moments of, of RP. Now I know that, that we're a little off field here. Cause I don't think you're concerned about the RP aspect. You're concerned about how to make this fair in there. One, um, one, you get to control the court and the judge and what the ultimate outcome is. Two, they've already admitted to a crime, so it's not like... I just feel like it's not like... It's not like you're coming out of nowhere and you're just arbitrarily saying, uh, hey, you're all dead now because I, I said so, because yeah. of fiat. 
uh, which is also the same about taking stuff away. If you just take stuff away out of fiat, that's different than if you're like, this is the next logical thing that happens as the game is you get locked up and they take away all your stuff. Yeah. Um, on, on there. Um, in terms of being fair, I would, like we always say, talk to your players outside the game and say, look, if you guys end up in jail, are you okay with not having your stuff for a session? Or, uh, you know, do you think that you guys might want to try and escape and just become outlaws now from the law? Um, like, what what are your thoughts? How do you feel about these sort of things? Yeah. If you ask them what they're ready for, you know, even say, hey, guys, death is still technically on the table. You could be found guilty and put to death. How do people feel about that? Some people are going to go, well, that's then that's how the story, you know, that's how the story goes, because we committed the crime and, yeah. you know, and did. And some people might be like, absolutely not. I don't want my character to die. But have that conversation with them ahead of time so that you can give them some of the options you're thinking about and some potential consequences and make sure that no one feels like they were abused or didn't have a chance to to fight back or get out of it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but but between all of the great things that that can spark for role play, I think it's a great situation. Yeah. Well, I also like, yeah, going back to kind of what you were saying at the beginning of that and what they wrote, what, what Zed wrote here, which is with, without being too harsh and ruining the fun, how do you punish the group? I think the thing to keep in mind is that the characters are on trial. The characters are going to get punished for the crime. You're not punishing the players. The pl I think that might be the distinction that I think a, like a DM might struggle with sometimes is like, well, you killed this character, so now you're you you don't get to have a fun role play this week. Like at the end of the day, the story should still be fun and engaging for everybody involved. Whether it's whether it's a crime story or if your characters are just heroes who always do the right thing, the story should follow that. So as long as as long as you have player buy-in and they're willing to go into like you're saying this fun trial situation, this fun. If you get sentenced to death, like. Is there then going to be a possible escape from the, the the gallows, right? Like, is there going to be a Robin Hood type thing where someone shoots the noose while you're tied to it? Like, the kind of vibe. Like, or, or an old suspicious guy pushes back a stone and says, come with me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I found a goat path. Yeah, like, there's a bunch of, like, there, there are ways to do it. I think, like, I think the big thing is, because I can understand, the, like, harsh and ruining the fun. Because I think if you have a group of players who, like, we play a murder hobo game, you can't punish us for being murder hobos. And so, like... They might not have normally. They might not normally be murder hobos, but yeah, there is sort of a point where it's like you can't just suddenly decide your world has law and order when it hasn't had it all along. True. And, I mean, if, but if you do, like, let's do it anyway. That's very fun for us all, and we're all buying into it's. It's still rewarding the players for weird role play with a fun and weird story session. Now, now that's being said, we don't know your specific game, so if you're playing by Elf Star rules. And if the character dies in the game, you can no longer associate with the players anymore. <laughs> then I don't know what to tell you. You need to get off of the chick tracks. <laughs> I, yeah, um, I had a thought and then I just lost it. No, well, I will, I'll vamp for a moment. This no, is me fine. vamping. I think, I think okay. if, it was, if I don't remember it, it wasn't worth having. <laughs> so. All right. Mailbag three. Hey folks, been a while since I wrote in, but I figured why not send in some other options, which I found to be pretty useful for one-shots. Now, just to clarify, this was uh, regarding masks in particular and PBTA games, uh, just so uh, no one listening or watching is confused. Uh, limit the amount of playbooks offered to players. Ideally, the basic core playbooks, 
because they can cover pretty much any idea of a character concept. Like Kimmy said, you can cut down on the world creation, so you can probably skip most of the backstory questions and how you first came together, as this can be their first issue. Then I'd say follow the advice of a writer who doesn't deserve to be named, but it's a comic book principle. Every issue should have two fights, either physical or emotional. I'm going to admit, I don't know who that writer is, yeah. but I'm but I'm intensely interested now if they... Yeah. I, I want to know who they are and what they did that they don't deserve to be mentioned. I, I don't... I've never heard this quote about comic books, but I have heard this quote about running one-shot D&D games. Of every every one-shot should have two encounters. So it's either... And like, it's either a, a, a social encounter or a fight encounter, like, mm. that, like a story thing, so... Uh, open in the middle of a superhero fight. Just right in the middle. Maybe even open with one of the heroes taking a powerful blow as they just got hit or something, or some building is in danger of falling. It shouldn't be a big fight like the henchman leading to the big bad villain later. The player should be able to help make up the rest of the story with their actions and moves. This may be heresy for some PBTA fans, but I'd say if you really want to save time, make some pregens and leave the character names empty. So like pre-written backstory questions, powers, moves, and extras. The extras of each playbook probably won't come up in a one-shot, like the Janus obligations probably uh, won't matter, but every game is different. Either way, love to hear your thoughts on this setup, and just hopefully have some fun. I'm Jolene. glad... Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Jolene. Uh, I'm glad that Jolene ex explained what they meant by the pre-written backstory questions part, because I was like, aren't all playbooks in PBTA pretty much pre-written? Like, most of the time, you just circle the stats that are already given to you, and you just right. move on. Like, so... Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to speed it up. I also I don't think you necessarily have to cut out the backstory stuff because I think you can do that in like five ten minutes at the most. But I also get if you're playing at a con, especially when you have a, you have a specific limited amount of time, you want to jump right into it. That is a good way to be able to jump right in. So, yeah, right. And and just like okay, it I I, I would find that something like that is because the names in mass are generic to be able to cover a whole wide different things. What you might want to do is take a minute and write up an index card with the names of some heroes that sort of match this archetype so that when I when I come and sit down at the table, I don't have to figure out what the yeah. the, the legacy is or the the you know kindred or whatever, and I don't remember most of the yeah. names of what they are. Um but the doomed, the 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 powerful, I don't yeah. <laughs> I'm flailing here. But but what I'm saying is if you give people a couple of examples, they can come down and they can immediately go, oh, cool, this is a Superman type, this is a Hulk type, this yeah. is a Spider-Man type, and get right into how they want to play this. Um, the legacy, right? The legacy is the is the boy wonder? I think so. Okay. Sorry, I'm, not, I'm just I'm not, up, to... I'm not up on my masks. It's been a while. <laughs> so I haven't played masks in like two or three years. So, um, so uh, like, I, I think you've got a lot, lot of really great ideas. Starting in the middle of a fight is always a fun way to to uh, play a game because it immediately gets everyone invested in the stakes. Yeah. And then you can kind of, you know, you get to do that fun record scratch and go, you might be wondering how I got here. <laughs> and then have yeah. everyone do their interactions and the basic thing that led them up to this fight and then go back into where the fight was. Yeah. And especially mass, which is kind of irreverent and like that, you could really make that a fun, uh, a fun bit. I think even if you don't do it as a flashback, I can think of so many comic books that I've read that just open with a random arbitrary fight that there's no backstory for. And then it ends and then like something else happens yeah. and you get into it. So it can be a good way to open things up with some action and some fast paced stuff to like learn your characters really quickly in the heat of battle and then move on from there. Right. 
yeah. Uh, so I think I think those are some some great ways. Um, I can see saving some time just by making some of the the decisions about that backstory, but mass at its core is is a it's less about the superhero fighting and more about the relationships between characters. And I would feel a little bit icky if you write so and so has a crush on so and so. Um, and then I sit down and I play that, I have to play that against somebody. Yeah. And, and if I don't, it feels like I'm not playing the character and I'm missing a part of it. But if I do, it's going to make me feel uncomfortable. I would say maybe leave those blank or maybe just don't like e- either let people work through that because it's like Riley said, it's only going to take a little while for you to, for you to do that. And if there's anything that people really don't want, they can kind of, you know, X card or reveal it and just be like, I'm not really into playing romance in this game, so I'm not going to answer that one. Or I'm going to write in an NPC that is, yeah, you know, off screen. I don't need to worry about. Yeah, um, and I, it goes back to what we talked about last week with the the person who had the pregens for the the Game of Thrones game, and they like made the pregen for the person oh, like yeah. you're you're a child looking for a spouse, and I was like, no, that's I don't want to play that. Like you shouldn't have to be like that limited in what you're playing when you sit down. And I think that yeah, part of the fun of a PBTA game, I think, is finding those weird character connections. So I do think that if you took it out entirely, it would maybe be less fun than normally playing a PBTA game for me. Like I think that's part of the fun of it. Like yeah. I. Most PBT games I play have been one-shots, and so I'm used to that being part of the one-shot. And I honestly, I think that asking those questions at the top of the game in a one-shot helps you be able to get into character faster because now you've got this real quick moment where you've thought about how you all know each other, and now you can get right into the game. So. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. So that you don't have to spend... I know that like in a regular campaign game, it usually takes me like two or three sessions to find my character's voice. Yeah. But if you're going to play a one shot, you don't have time for that. And and the PBTA playbooks have a really good kind of shorthand for me to be like, okay, my character isn't fully fleshed out, but I know that Riley and I got into trouble that one time when we broke into a discotheque. You know, and, and that can at least inform some of the things. And it gives you something like you can reference in the middle of a combat, like, hey, throw him like you did that disco ball. <laughs> yeah. And again, based on this, like, I wasn't here for the original conversation this was in response to, so I don't know 100% the, the, con, the context of what this setting is. And I think there's a difference between playing a one-shot where you and your friends have agreed that on Friday we're going to get together and play masks versus I have signed up for a mask session at a con. Because in one situation, you are going to have a chance to have at least some conversation ahead of time. So you could have like a text thread or an email chain going on to get some of those like character things out of the way so that when you get to the table, you're ready to just jump in and go rather than a con you might not have that and that's that's why i think you especially need to have those conversations about character dynamics ahead of time at the con before you start playing because you might be playing with total strangers and so like i say it might be very hard to be like oh me like if i sat down like okay nick and i are our characters are married you're like wait we didn't talk about that i'm not really playing that (laughs) yeah so we're yeah like we're we're reading sue richards like i i came to play the thing like what are you talking about right so well, I, I think that the I think we're going to wrap it up there. We're we're going a little bit long. I personally like the really long episodes of, of the show, but I know I'm in the minority there. Well, and, I mean, and it also comes it also comes from a time email. where I yes. <laughs> I mean it's hard not to be long at that point. And but I'm it not... also it also comes from a time where I had like eight to ten hours a day that I had to fill with something. So the long yeah, ones were great for fair. me. Uh, but in any case, I just want to thank you all for joining us for session thirty, episode twenty. Thank you to our chat mod, James V, and our amazing Patreons who keep us free and independent. I'm Nick. I'm Riley. 
And uh, remember, StrategicCon is coming up September 2nd to uh, 4th, and we'd love to see you there if that is in any way possible for you. Uh, now we're going to go ahead and leave you with a song. This is Prick a Hollybush, which is a traditional song, and it's done by the uh, the very own Merry Wives of Windsor, official sponsors of Kimmy's Studio nice. <laughs> for Happy Jacks. Thank you very much, and we'll see you soon. Product of the Happy Jacks RPG Network. The Mary Sue's performed our intro music, and our ending song was played with the express permission of the artist. Visit happyjacks.org for more information and to find all our streams and podcasts.